This Sunday we are beginning a new series called Come to Me. Here is the invitation of Jesus. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does that sound like good news? It's an invitation to come to Jesus as a new and better way of everything. A way that is more human, more authentic, more transformative, more empowered, and more transcendent. With all the pressure and weight of actualizing these things on Him instead of on you. Is that good news? So Jesus calls his way an easier way, a lighter way. And so these are the words that we're going to be unpacking for the next number of weeks and which I would recommend that you consider inviting friends and family to hear. But before we can fully do that, as followers of Jesus and as Christ Church, a church that bears his name, we must do something else first. Um, and that is a bit of a soul search today. Under the words that precede these words that I just read about come to me, we're going to unpack the verses, verses 20 to 24, before we get to that. So as you can tell, there's a juxtaposition between the gospel reading I gave and the invitation Jesus gives of come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden find rest. We have these themes of judgment and repentance. And then we have this softness of Jesus saying, come to me for I'm lowly in heart, I'm gentle in heart. And so as a church, I want us to spend a Sunday going, let's hear the warning of Jesus that we hear in this section of Scripture. It's called, Woe to Unrepentant Cities. Isn't that intense? And then that leads into these words of welcome from Jesus. So we're going to do some soul searching today, some heart work, um, and that we would have the full Jesus. We want the hard words of Jesus as well as the gentle words of Jesus because we want the whole Jesus. Yes? Okay, so if you're new to our church, we, we teach through books of the Bible verse by verse. So we're working through a whole book which means we cover everything that's in there. So we don't just pick and choose the stuff that we think is like, ooh, this is a hot topic, versus like, ooh, this is a hard topic, so let's avoid that. Okay? So let's give some context to these words that Jesus is talking here. Jesus' supernatural healing of physical pain and infirmity and spiritual redemption from evil spirits has been like the dominant theme of his ministry. He's done all this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount where he makes the scriptures clear. He makes the law of God clear. He makes God's vision of salvation clear. It's beautiful revelation of healings, of redemption, and of clear teaching. And in doing so, Jesus reveals that he is God. God in flesh. And that as God, he has power over all things. 
But fundamentally, what Jesus is doing is revealing how God uses his power. And this is really good news for us. Because the way that God uses his power is to heal and save humanity. But that's how God desires to express and to utilize the power that he has. So God's true saving power is in his love, is in his mercy, and is in his grace. And so for the creator of the universe, justice and strength are easy. We actually see this in the Old Testament. That we have this idea of God being far off and lofty, who is just this righteous judge of saying, whoever does good gets blessed, and whoever does bad gets consequences. And this is often what we expect, and sometimes what we want of God, except not for ourselves. So we want God to interact with the world to punish evil, reward good. Right? That's kind of generally what we would expect of a God over the universe. But for God, that kind of expression of strength is easy. But self-sacrifice is a much more costly and generous path that God has chosen to walk out with humanity in his wisdom. This is what Jesus has revealed. That God is powerful, able to heal, able to save, able to redeem, but he's powerfully loving, merciful, and saving in doing so. So in these chapters, what we've been studying in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been revealing this all to a specific region of cities. And they flock to him for healing and for redemption from evil spirits. So we get these big crowds around Jesus. And now Jesus is giving them a challenge. After all these weeks, maybe even months, of all of this ministry taking place in these cities, now Jesus has a stern word. How do you guys feel about stern words from Jesus? There's a lot of reluctance that comes up with people. They like this simple version that says, Jesus is love. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is kind. Jesus is healing. And that's true. But also... Jesus has strong feelings. Jesus has strong clarity on things. Jesus also gets upset about some stuff. Does that fit into our framework of our understanding of Jesus? Do we want a caricature of Jesus, like an action figure? Do we get to move like... Or do we want a Jesus that's bigger than us, that actually impacts us? Right? So verse 20, here's how Jesus begins. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Denounce is not a small statement. A denunciation is to publicly declare something to be wrong or evil. This is a public declaration by Jesus. And so Jesus, we know his deep empathy. We know his deep grace. We know his deep mercy and the explanation and the mighty works he's done for these people. But he didn't get the response from them that he desired. So the question becomes, what did Jesus expect? When he was going to pour out all this mercy and all this redemption, what was he anticipating? 
you would get in response to that mercy. That having seen the love of God in flesh, in the mess of their lives, he was expecting that they would turn. They would repent from their independence from him. If what we see in Jesus is who God is, this higher love than we could have imagined, then our sinful independence from God is actually worse than if God was simply strong and just. So hear me out. Just the God as, as, as righteous ruler and keeper of justice, when we sin against that, when we say independent, we're going to live independently from that, that's the nature of sin. To say, I will dictate my own life, I will determine my own life, I will provide for myself, I'll define myself, I'll be what I want to be instead of the one who created and designed and had a beautiful vision. That's sin. But then in addition, if God is love that enters into our mess in flesh, that embodies the life that we live and enters into and understands us the way we wish to be understood and goes right to the root of the problem and loves us and cares for us and takes upon himself all of that sin, and offers redemption, and offers freedom, and says, I will walk with you the long journey to restoration, and I'll carry you forward for eternity into perfection of life. If that's the God of love, then our independence and rejection of him is worse than we thought. It's worse than just if he was a rule keeper. Because we're rejecting a love that is everything that we want and everything that we desire and everything that we long for. That's what Jesus is saying. Is I came to you in all this mercy and all of this care and all of this gentleness and all of this love and you still didn't wholeheartedly turn back to God. That's a big statement. So what this means is, the more loving we see God to be, the more sorry for our sinful distrust we should be. And not just sorry, but what Jesus is going to go on to say here is heartbroken. Woe to you, Therese. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus' statement is essentially, woe to you, grief to you. Grief to you, cities. Tyre and Sidon are cities that come up a lot in the Old Testament, and they're centered around that God's going to judge them because they're being evil. They're evil to their people, and they're evil to the world. And so God is saying, that doesn't go unnoticed by him. He's going to deal with them. So that comes up with the prophet Ezekiel. That God's going to judge them. And ultimately they are. Their judgment comes in the form of being conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar. And then later by Alexander the Great. But Jesus expects that the repentance of Capernaum and these other cities where he's been doing his ministry... He expects that their repentance would be not just a, hey, sorry for doing that, 
but like an act of mourning. A real recognition of the evil of their ways. And so he's saying the appropriate response would be sackcloth and ashes. Oh, that was close. Close, but not quite. Now, this sackcloth, now it's in my head, and I've got to be really careful. The sackcloth and ashes reference is an Old Testament piece. But this idea that you'd wear specific clothing, this cloth, you'd cover your face with ashes, and you'd be in a state of mourning, of repentance. This is the kind of sorrow you feel when you've betrayed someone who didn't deserve it. I think this is the point. Is that what we tend to do is have this character of God as this kind of stoic rule keeper, if God exists at all. But the vision that Jesus comes and brings is this God who calls himself Father. God who loves. God who enters into the mess. God who sacrifices. God who dies that you might live. And so if that's true, then when we say, no, I've got it. No, I'll do it on my own. No, I'll do what I want. No, I don't trust you. No, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. We're saying no to perfect, intimate, specific love. Now, we know what that feels like when we're trying to love somebody else well. And they reject it. Has anyone felt that? I feel that as a, as a parent. I feel that as a friend. I feel that as a pastor. I'm trying to love you the way I know will serve you best. And then there's a rejection. Jesus is saying, if you really saw it, if you really saw the rejection that you're living in, and how subpar it is in comparison to the love that's on offer, you would weep. You'd weep for it. Because Jesus has come giving his whole self only to find a people withholding themselves from him. He goes on, But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon for you. So here's, in the way of Jesus, here's how we understand this. The day of judgment is the time when Jesus the King will judge all things. And Jesus the King will bring justice to victory. And I think that's the key phrase. Jesus will bring justice to victory. Right now in our world, does it feel like justice is victorious? No. Does it feel like it's victorious anywhere? You ever watch like a court case and then how they come out and you're like, justice, best case scenario, almost gets like tasted, touched on, but never fully. You ever notice that? So justice is striving and seemingly failing in this world that we live in. The way of Jesus considers every wrong ever committed, every trial, every undealt with injustice, as still in process and waiting a final conclusion at Jesus at his judgment. That's, that's what we believe is part of the way of Jesus. So what that means then, for example, if there is corruption 
in the pharmaceutical industry? Does it feel like our world can touch that injustice? There's too much corruption, right? We believe in the way of Jesus. Jesus will bring it to life. Sorry, bring it to light and will judge it. If there is corruption in government, is that possible? Is it likely? Jesus will bring it to light. Everything that's hidden will bring it to light and will give it consequence. Cities that don't care for the poor and churches that reject the sinner and hide the sins of their leaders, all of it will be brought to light and will be held accountable. That's what we believe. So every time we see justice seemingly thwarted or avoided, or fallen, in our world, that's not the end of the story. You ever hear about somebody who's like truly evil, and then they die before justice comes about? Doesn't that irk you? You're just like, oh, they escaped justice. That feeling? In the way of Jesus, there is no escape. That's what we believe. Is that Jesus is going to handle every single case and bring it to complete and total closure. Is that good news? So that means the too big to fails will wish they could go back and lose everything in this world rather than face the judge. Because part of it is this sense like of those who escape justice or judgment in this life, they don't get off the hook. They actually get, they, that's part of their trial is that you avoided and you escaped it in the world, and so now you're going to get it more. It's kind of how the Bible talks about it. Okay, just as a side note. And the way Jesus talks about it here in this text is that those who face judgment then will actually wish they would have faced it in this life because it would have been easier than what they're going to face. Here, though, Jesus is saying that these cities will be judged for how they responded to the grace revealed to them. Yes, they receive Jesus, and they flock to him, but they withhold their whole heart from him. So what we see then in these words is it's possible to receive the benefits of Jesus momentarily without authentic, life-transforming repentance. Isn't that interesting? I know you're probably feeling that's heavy, but it's helpful. So watch what he does here. He says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. So let me unpack this. I actually think this is a really helpful warning to charismatic churches. Hear me out. So charismatic churches are a stream of Christianity that really foster and host or or cultivate a culture within the church of the miraculous in a really beautiful way. And so in those churches, there's a lot of faith, a a path well-tread that says when there's problems, let's pray for them and see the miraculous come to them. When there's sickness, let's pray for and push through for healing. I'll be honest with you, that's not my strongest suit. I think part of my life, I don't want to dramatize this, has been marked by a lot of suffering. 
And so because of that, I tend to go, the miraculous is to get through it in the love of Jesus. That, that's kind of, I have a lot of faith for that. Because that's the story I've walked. But I've had other people and friends that I've worked with who have so much faith for the miraculous, and they're like, we should pray for more, we should go for more. And I'm like, well, do we have to? You know? You know? And then, like, uh, years ago, a friend of mine that I worked on staff with got this rare flesh-eating disease. And he's a young guy, young kids, um, and he's going to die, like, on the edge of death. And for me, my initial response to it was, this is really sad, I really grieve this, I pray for him, I trust him to Jesus, and I pray for his family. But in my kind of heart, I was like, we're, we're preparing for the end. But there are people in our community that were like, no way. We, we refused and prayed hard. And so what they did is they led our community to walk the halls of the hospital every night in shifts, praying for his recovery. To the point where the hospital staff were like, we can't get rid of you, so we might as well work with you. And they made this special waiting room for people from our church and put lists of the specific miracles that would need to happen to bring this guy back to life. Because he was completely on uh, life support by that point. And so what the teams would do, and here's me going, I don't have a ton of faith for this, but you're all going, so I should probably go. And, and I, I was a pastor at that church, not the only one. Um, but it was a gear that I didn't really have. And so I just followed them. And I shadowed them and I prayed for the things and tried to cultivate that faith inside of me more that I saw they carried. By the end of the process, it was weeks, every single miracle on that board happened. And the doctors and the nurses and the community all around just said, that guy was dead and was brought back to life. So I'm, when I say I think this is a helpful warning for charismatic churches, this is not, I'm not saying charismatic churches should be looked down upon. I hold that in high esteem. I want more of that in our community. I want more of that in me. Amen? So... But here's what Jesus is saying here is that you can have the miraculous where it feels like, like imagine what Capernaum is feeling about being the host city to Jesus' ministry. Capernaum is like a nowhere city. Better than Nazareth, but nowhere near as cool as Jerusalem. Okay? Their music scene sucked. Restaurant scene, lame. Like so as far as the region's concerned, They're not all that significant. They're a big part of the trade route. But for Jesus to go, I'm going to base my ministry here and do the bulk of my miraculous, my mighty works here. Imagine what Capernaum is thinking. Like they're thinking, this is like heaven on earth. We're awesome. We accepted this prophet and look at all the stuff that he's doing compared to the cities that reject Jesus. But here Jesus is saying, are you expecting to be exalted to heaven because you've hosted me? He's saying you won't be lifted to heaven. And then he goes further, talk about uncomfortable, you'll be thrown into Hades, he says. Now Hades specifically is this language meaning the place of the dead. Right? Where the spirits of the people who have passed away await the final judgment. So Jesus is just giving a juxtaposition here to say, 
You're not being exalted and lifted up. You're actually going to be cast down. You're going to die. And Capernaum, having received Jesus' whole ministry more than any other city yet, Jesus is still saying it's going to be brought low. Why? Because though they're hospitable to his miraculous works, they remain unrepentant or unrecognizing of their deeper need for him. He's not just a fix for the momentary external troubles. He's the fix to the cosmic one. He's not just a help for the current circumstance. Jesus is the solution to the whole ontological existence of the person, to the very root problems and issues. Jesus is the way of everything. If he's truly the creator of the earth, you're only continuing to breathe because he maintains your life. Your cells only continue to live because he holds them together. And he is saying there's a problem that needs to be solved, a solution that needs to come that's more than, let me just help you with this current difficulty. You see the difference? He goes on, For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. When we look at the Bible and we look at the Old Testament, the flood and the story of Sodom are essentially the Bible's atomic bomb. It's a warning to all of history to go, there is a God and He cares what you're doing. And if you continue to contribute to evil and the destruction of the world, you're going to have to answer to God. And the flood, which is this judgment of the whole earth, and Sodom, which is a fiery judgment of a whole city, are these scary kind of monuments that make you go, don't forget, there's a God. And you're going to answer to Him. Jesus is saying here that at the final judgment, Sodom will fare better than Capernaum. Just take that in for a minute. The city that was destroyed by fire from heaven will fare better at the final judgment than Capernaum, the host city of Jesus' ministry. Why? Because of how much grace was revealed in Capernaum. How much mercy they saw and heard. The great teaching, the mighty works, equals all of this revelation about the nature of God and God's desire and will to save humanity. And the final judgment of Jesus says that that comes with some responsibility. What is the responsibility that we have to the revelation we see and we hear to repent and to receive it. The responsibility is to say, if God is this loving, if God is this merciful, if God is, His wisdom is to save, then I must look at my life and go, where do I need the saving? I must look at my life and go, where do I need love? Where have I been, have I been trying to find love in all these other places? And I'm meant to find love in Him. Where have I been questing and working and fighting? And instead of doing that, I need to turn to Him and be adopted by a Heavenly Father. 
This is the, this is the invitation is to go, if God is all of this, then we are responsible to do what? And Jesus is saying, receive it. Leave the other ways that pale. Leave the other ways that have failed you. Leave the other ways that have broken you. And receive the way that works. And on the final judgment, Jesus is saying, that will be the point that I'm looking for. Did you receive it? So here's the two questions I want to close with. When you hear Jesus say all of this, what do you hear? Like when you hear Jesus say, I'm going to judge the wicked. When you hear Jesus give a warning to say, you've got to turn from your ways and receive me with your whole life. What do you hear? Do you hear the voice of a harsh parent? Of the religion that you grew up in? Do you hear the rejection of the high and mighty? Do you hear the disdain of an ivory tower? What do you hear? Do you hear harshness and hatred? Or do you hear love? Do you hear desire for God to save? Even in these statements, we can hear what Jesus says. Sodom would have remained to this day if they repented. Why? Because this is the true heart of God. His desire from Genesis to Revelation is that humanity would live. He doesn't desire the destruction of humanity. God does not wish for that. And yet, in our culture today, we're more likely to call evil good and the idea of God evil. We must hear in the voice of Jesus the kindness of His clarity. The motivations behind the warning and what is truly being offered. Here's what's being offered. And we're going to hear it in the following verses in the coming weeks. Come to me. The coming to me part is the having turned from the things that are killing you. Come to me instead. All who labor and are heavy laden. That's what sin feels like. Laborous. Heavy. That I've got to take care of my own that I've got to live in dependence, in independence, that I've got to be enough for myself. It's exhausting. And Jesus is saying, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'll walk with you, for I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart. Don't you love the juxtaposition of Jesus to be gentle and lowly in heart and yet powerful enough, clear enough, strong enough to be able to judge and destroy evil once and for all? Doesn't that feel good? To see that He can do both? And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the heart of the warning to say it's not enough to come to Jesus for momentary help. Jesus is help for everything. So the last question we have to ask is this. What is the evil we should be most concerned about in this world? Based on this teaching. 
The sin of hearing and seeing the glory and grace of God in Christ and not repenting is far worse than what we would conventionally call evil. So just digest that for a second. So the way the Bible talks, Sodom is like the worst. But Jesus is saying, Sodom is not the worst. Capernaum is the worst. So what that means then is that the worst kind of evil is the one that hears the Gospel and sees the Gospel of Jesus and rejects it. Doesn't truly, authentically, holistically repent. And where are we most likely to find this kind of evil? In churches. So the place we're most likely to find that kind of evil is in church. I say this with great, a great well of empathy. I grieve for this who live, for those who live hearing but not receiving the gospel. But after 20 years of ministry, here's the ways I would say I hear this. Here's what it sounds like. I'm not evil like the rest of the world. I don't get drunk. I don't watch bad things. I don't worship sexual pleasure. And I still have morals. But if I'm honest, I'm angry. I'm mean-spirited. I'm anxious. And I'm judgmental. It's a partial repentance. It says, I've turned from all the worldly ways, but I continue in the inner reality of my life to be full of it. Full of anger. Full of meanness. Full of judgment. Full of self-righteousness. Here's how else it sounds. I want Jesus and I see my need for Jesus. I'm aware of my wounding and my pain. But I'm scared to miss out on what this world has to offer in case these other ways might still work out for me. It's a partial repentance. I see my need for Jesus where I've been hurt, but I don't want to give my life to Jesus because maybe there's still pleasures to be had. And lastly, I'm trying to trust trust Jesus and keep hoping that He is going to make things better, but I have all of these secret struggles that I'm not willing to talk about, so evil still has all the power over my life. It's the compartmentalization of the follower of Jesus who says, I want Jesus to help me here, but in these other places, I got it. And Jesus is saying, I'm showing myself to you. I'm revealing myself to you. I'm giving myself to you in sacrifice. I'm fighting for you. I'm the true purpose of your life. The true solution of your life. The true fulfillment of your life. And you're going, yeah, I'll use you for some, but not all. And ultimately, the real gift given in the way of Jesus is not momentary help, or intervention. It's an everything gift. But in order to have a gift that works for everything, everything needs to be given to that gift. Your whole life. Every part of you. It has to be a holistic, the whole person of you. The whole story. 
all your strengths, all your weaknesses, all your projections, all your relationships, your low times and your high times, your desires, your thoughts, your actions, and ultimately your trust, all has to be given to Jesus or this is not worth it. You should stop coming to church. Because the more you hear, the more you'll answer for. But the truth is what we hear is a God who saves. Is a God who does the work. Is a God who will care for you. A God who will provide for you. A God who will save you. And a God who will carry you into eternity. And doesn't that feel more human instead of trying to be your own God? Doesn't it feel more relieving than trying to save yourself? If we truly see Jesus rightly, we should want all of it and be willing to give all of it in order to have Him. That's the promise. And so Jesus is saying on His end of the bargain... Oh, the picture I had, I, there's this viral video, which I can't say all of it. But there's a viral video out the last couple months of a wedding where this beautiful young bride gives this beautiful um, summary of her vows. She writes her own vows. And then when it comes time for the groom to offer his written vows, all he offers is a few crass statements about having sex with her as often as he can. And the whole room groans like, oh. I think his name um, in the video is Corey, actually. No, uh, yeah. And you could hear the, the, crowd, the room groans. And one of his groomsmen goes, come on, Corey. And the preacher who's officiating over the service goes, is that what you're going with? Like giving him a moment to laugh it off and then give some real vows. And he goes, that's all I got. He's, you're sure? Yep. And he's laughing. And it's a heartbreaking moment because here she is, this bride, is giving her whole self to her groom. And the groom is holding back all the goodness and just offering her something vile. And you, the room can feel the difference. And I think authentic Christianity, true followers of Jesus, if we say we know who Jesus is and we give the confession of faith, and we hear the gospel and the scriptures, true, authentic Christianity should say, you've given everything, I give everything. That this table is a... a, a, a covenant renewal. It's a renewal of our vows. And in it, Jesus is saying, I've given my whole body. I've given my, my blood. I've shed it for you. The cross isn't just a solution for sin. It's the extent to which God loves. And we're meant to come and say, I receive your body and I receive your blood and I give all of me in return. I give all my trust. I give all my life. And what we see from it in authentic Christianity 
is that the life we then live, having given it away, we receive it back in pure goodness. It's reordered and re-envisioned and reinvigorated and re-empowered. It's not the death of everything we hold dear, it's the resurrection of it. But it's because it's given to the one who has the power to do that. And so I, I'm stoked in the next coming weeks to, to proclaim to the world, even in the Spirit, come to Jesus all who are weary and heavy laden and find rest. But we also have to wrestle with the fact as the church to go, it's false advertising if we don't have it. If we're not living it. If we haven't given ourselves to this Savior first. True? So hear me. I don't want you to hear this sermon as like, my gosh, God is so hard on us. God is so terrible. Jesus is so harsh. I want you to hear Jesus has given so much. Turning from all the things that are killing us, is it not as much a grace? Is it not as much good news as forgiveness? That He's safe, He's kind, and He's powerful to save. So turning from everything that's killing us makes sense. It just makes sense. So here's what I would invite us to do. If you're comfortable with it, close your eyes for a moment. And your heart has probably already identified things that you're like, I've been holding back this part of me. Or maybe you're coming for the first time and you're going, I'm ready for all of this to become someone else's problem to solve. I need a Savior. I can't save myself. I need a Father. I can't parent myself. I need someone who will love me. I can't sustain myself. But to look at your life and go, all of this is so valuable that only God can save. And just take a moment for private reflection. your eyes closed hear the invitation Christ the light of the world has come to dispel the darkness of our hearts so let us turn repent to the light and confess all our sins that need to be saved by the love the sacrifice of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus.
So take a moment to confess your sins to the one who will save you.